All right. Now, if you were with us last week, we've been working our way through uh, the book of Genesis, and we came to chapter 19, which is the infamous chapter on Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, we came to this verse where it says, And they, these are the men of Sodom, who have surrounded the house of Lot. Remember, two men, who are angels, came to visit Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is housing them in his house. All the men of Sodom circle his house. And it says, They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Um, Number of English translations translate that. uh, Bring them out to us that we may have sex with them. Now, um, recently, in the very recent history, when you look at church history, very recently there have been uh, a number of scholars... And I would say there's even a movement today to say that the Bible does not condemn all homosexuality. And they would say this word no, yada, in the Hebrew can mean to have sex with, but it can also just mean to get to know. So... One interpretation is that the men of Sodom, and this is from what I'm going to call them the revisionists, who say that, uh, uh, by revisionist I mean those within the church who are studying the Bible who say that the Bible does not condemn all homosexuality. They would say this word no can mean one of two things. One, have them come out so we can interrogate them. And get to know them. So the sin of Sodom was uh, rough interrogation. So God destroyed the city for uh, just some mean interrogation uh, practices. And uh, we looked at at that and we said in the context that word no is used again. Talking about Lot's daughters and their virginity has a sexual connotation to it. Um, That's you. You really have to twist scripture to take that uh, interpretation. Then there are those who say, bring them out to us that we may know them. Doesn't just mean so we can have sex with them. It means so we can rape them. Okay. Now, I actually agree with that interpretation. That's what they wanted to do. Okay. But then, here's what the revisionists do. They say, well, all the story of Sodom and Gomorrah does is it teaches that homosexual rape is wrong. All rape is wrong. Heterosexual, homosexual. But once you, once you remove the violent aspect, the, the rest of the Bible does not necessarily condemn all homosexual acts. Right? And that is, uh, that is the position... Of, uh, of these revisionists, and it used to be just in the liberal branch of Christendom. Now it's creeping in to uh, what I would call conservative evangelicalism. There's a number of books and scholars who are pushing this agenda. And I would say that we have an entire generation of Christians confused on the issue. 
Now, um, the reason this passage is not just condemning homosexual rape, which it is, but the reason you can't just stop there, and I said this last week, is this. There's not one place in the entire Bible where homosexual behavior is endorsed. It is always condemned as sinful. So you can't just read Genesis 19 and say all it's condemning is homosexual rape, but other acts of homosexual, uh, of a homosexual nature are okay. Well, to say that nowhere in the Bible is it endorsed, we have to now do a bit of a survey of the Bible. Now, here's what I want to do for us today. Um, I want to address what I'm going to call pro-homosexual biblical arguments. So if you were to have a, a conversation with a revisionist or a Christian who has bought into revisionist literature, here are the issues that they might raise. And what I'm finding is a lot of Christians go, I don't know how to answer these, these arguments. So I'm going to give you seven of the arguments that they might raise and show you how to refute them. Okay? First one would be this. And in fact, let me, let me read from Leviticus, two verses from Leviticus first. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So, Here's the, uh, the question. Here's the objection. And this, you'll, you'll hear this all the time. This is the big one out there on the internet. Okay? Why enforce that Old Testament law okay, and ignore laws about not eating shellfish? Okay? I mean, there are certain foods that are unclean, and those are an abomination also. Do you like shrimp? They're having uh, all-you-can-eat shrimp at Red Lobster. Yeah. So, so why do you Christians... Um, no, Joyce, don't leave now. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so, so why do you Christians selectively uh, pick on homosexuals, but you eat all your shellfish, is the, the argumentation. I remember actually kind of getting into this debate with a newspaper uh, guy who wrote an wrote a editorial, and he, he basically said this, and I wrote back, and we kind of had a little back and forth, okay? Um, so here's, here, here's what my response would be. Every serious Bible scholar who knows anything about the Bible knows there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, an old covenant that God made with Israel, and a new covenant that God has made with the church. Okay? How those covenants work is a question that everybody has to deal with. All right? In fact, here in Hebrews, it says, Hebrews 7, 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, okay, we have a new high priest. His name is Jesus. As we went from old covenant to new, we have a new, new high priest. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. There's change between the old and the new, and there's change of law. 
What does that mean? How do you deal with that? Well, let me give you three ways that scholars struggle with the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Okay, and let me put a picture up here. Let's say this is the Old Testament and this is the New Testament. Let's say this represents God making a covenant with Israel. And he gives them a whole bunch of laws. Some of them dealing with morals. Some of them dealing with how to set up their government. Some of them dealing with ceremonies. Okay, so God makes a covenant with Israel. In the New Testament, clearly Christ comes and establishes a new covenant in his blood, which we just celebrated with the Lord's Supper. Okay, um, If there's a new, then there's an old. What do we do with the laws in the old? Now, one way of dealing with it, and this is you hear the term dispensationalism. Dispensationalism basically says the old was made with Israel. It's done. It's over. Get your marching orders from the New Testament. Now, there's also another form of theology called New Covenant theology, and that's basically the same thing. The old was, was given to Israel. The church is not Israel. You get your marching orders from uh, the New Testament. Now, that's fine. If that's your approach, and b- by the way, Moody Bible is a dispensational school, right? That would be their approach. MacArthur Study Bible, that would be their approach. Uh, let me say this. This is probably an overly simplistic way to say it, Okay. Um, But if this is your approach, then here's the answer. Yep, in Leviticus, homosexuality was condemned, and they even put them to death. In the New Covenant, they're not put to death, but it's clearly wrong. Where? Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. So either way, either covenant you want to look at, it is condemned. Homosexuality is condemned. So that's one way to do it. Another approach is what you call covenant theology. Now, covenant theology, here's the difference. They would say, while there's an old covenant with Israel and a new covenant with the church, the church and Israel are the same. Right? You could put it this way. We are spiritual Israel and Israel was the church in the Old Testament. So they, find, they don't just put a big X through this and say, just follow this. They say, we have to unite these two. But they say uh, the Old Testament laws can be divided into three types of laws. There was the civil law. So, you know, here's how you set up your government. There were ceremonial laws, which uh, pointed to Christ, but were fulfilled in Christ. So when Christ comes... The civil's fulfilled, the ceremonial's fulfilled, but there's the moral law, which, because we're Israel, transfers to the New Testament. So uh, they would emphasize not just the New Testament verses that condemn homosexuality, but the Old Testament verses too. But the kill them part would drop out. That's civil law. But the moral uh, condemnation would transfer. Okay? You say, which one are you? Well, I am kind of a, a third thing. It's, what's the term? A tertium quid. Yeah, yeah. Don't you dare call me a tertium quid, okay? All right, so this one says this. 
that God can't change. Therefore, his morality can't change. But he can package his moral law in different ways, in different covenants, with different ceremonial laws and different civil laws. So, the same God gave a bunch of laws to Israel, but the moral law is always the same. The civil and the ceremonial laws, they can change. And the, uh, the, the don't eat lobster law is not a moral law. It's a ceremonial law. Jesus declared all food clean. Okay? Um, and then in the New Testament... There, uh, there aren't a lot of civil laws because the church is not a nation. So be careful about that, right? Um, and we don't, uh, we don't have, uh, we don't have civil laws and the ceremonial laws. We don't need a priesthood. We don't need a temple. We don't need all the festivals because they're all fulfilled in Christ. Okay, but the moral law stays the same. So I actually find. Both methods. So the question would be, how do you know moral from civil and ceremonial? I think both the dispensational method and the covenant method are valid. I think if it's clearly reiterated in the New Testament, then it's moral law. But I also think that you take the moral law in the Old Testament, you drop out that which is clearly civil and clearly ceremonial, and you can find God's moral law there too. And because it's the same God, you're going to find the same moral standards in both covenants. Now, you go, wow, that's, that's real interesting. Here's, here's the response though. You Christians like to cherry pick the ones you want to keep and, and use others to condemn homosexuals. And I would come back and say, no, no, no. We are not arbitrarily cherry-picking, okay? We are very concerned about being consistent in our Bible interpretation, in our hermeneutics, okay? In fact, I would, here's, here's how I would come back. I would say, which hermeneutical framework do you use to sort out moral, civil, and ceremonial law? Do you use dispensationalism, New Covenant theology, uh, Reformed Baptist theology, uh, or uh, Covenant theology? Which one do you use? And when their eyes glaze over and they go, what are you talking about? Say, I wonder who's cherry-picking here. Okay? So, there's your answer to... Uh, to the whole shellfish game. All right. Number two. The real sin, they, they will say with the Levit- Leviticus verses, is not homosexuality, but coercive homosexuality. Okay? Now, while I would say that that's, that's what's going on in Sodom, coercive homosexuality, what about Leviticus 20? They would say that the reason Leviticus 20 is condemning homosexuals is because it's just assuming that there's coercion going on, that there's force or or rape going on. Some would say this. All right, let's read it again. Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Why do we put the victim to death? Boy, is that unfair. 
One day you're walking down the road, you get raped by a man, and now you've got to die? This is not, this is not uh, coercion. Both parties are consenting in this. Okay? So while there's clearly coercion in Sodom, there's no coercion here. Okay? A, th- a third objection. The real sin in Leviticus is homosexual temple prostitution. Now, absolutely, there was lots of prostitution, heterosexual and homosexual prostitution in the ancient pagan religions. So what's being condemned here, they say, is not all homosexuality, but just religious homosexuality. Okay? Um, Well, here's the answer to that. While prostitution, temple prostitution, is condemned in Deuteronomy, it's not mentioned here. Leviticus 18, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. You have to read temple activity into this. It's it's not there. Okay? And then when you look at some of the other sins that are listed in that chapter, are they okay as long as you don't do them in a temple? You're not to have sex with your mother, your sister, or your neighbor's wife. Do we say just as long as you don't do that in the temple then it's fine? That seems to be the argument here. But now let's look at it from the converse. There's another thing that is done in the temple, a pagan temple. It says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So is it okay to sacrifice your children as long as it's not to Moloch in the temple? No. So, so don't read temple prostitution into the Leviticus condemnation of homosexuality. Right? And don't say, um, well, whatever you do outside of the temple, as long as it's, you know, it's not done in the temple, that must be okay too. You have to read coercion, and you have to read temple prostitution into these texts. Now, let's, uh, let's go to the New Testament. Here's a big one. Jesus never says anything about homosexuality. Okay. And my answer to that is, so? So? What's that have to do with anything? <gasps> Don't you care what Jesus has to say? <laughs> Yeah, but I care that the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. What, are we that naive that we only take the red letters of Jesus? And the rest don't matter? Or the rest are not as inspired or not inspired? Oh, that's just Paul talking. That's just Moses talking. Really? That's why some... Uh, theologians detest red-letter Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red. And there's a red-letter movement that's pro-homosexual that uses this argument. Jesus didn't say anything, therefore it must, must be okay. Um, objection one, all scripture's inspired. Objection two, while Jesus may not have used the word, he certainly had something to say about homosexuality. 
He's asked about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19. It says, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Just as today, back then, there was a controversy over what are the grounds for divorce and remarriage. Right? So Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to take you back to the prototype, to the beginning, to God's standard for marriage. Okay? He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator, so the, wouldn't the creator of marriage and the creator of man and woman know what marriage should be? Well, what's the prototype? At the beginning, the creator made them male and female. He didn't make them male and male. He didn't make them female and female. He didn't make five males and one woman or five women and two men. He said, I'm, I'm, I am setting a standard by creating one man, one woman, and he marries them in in Genesis 2, he, he gives Eve to the man. And then there's that thing about the, the, the man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife. That's marriage. That's the standard. Okay. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Okay. Um, so here, here's the standard. God made it clear. He could have created a whole bunch of men. He could have created a, a, a tribe of men and a tribe of women. But he did it this way to make it crystal clear. Now you have to, first of all, believe there's a creator and we didn't just evolve from dust. And that's part of the problem. Once you buy into evolution, who cares if men sleep with men? But if there's a creator who designed us, and he created one man and one woman for the purpose of illustrating what marriage is supposed to be, then a violation of that is a slap in the face of the creator. Okay, So, so the idea uh, that Jesus says nothing about it, well, if you mean he doesn't use the word homosexual, you're right. But to say he says nothing about it is wrong. You know, let's say, let me give you this illustration. Let's say instead of a softball team, we decided to start a, a Valleybrook polo team. Okay? So we, um, we bought a book on the rules of polo. And it says, polo is a game played on a field with two goals where riders ride on horses and they use wooden mallets. All right, that's all we need to know. Let's go. So we show up for our first game, and some guys are on rhinoceroses. And the coach, Ryan's a coach, okay. Ryan, what's wrong with you idiots? Why are you on rhinoceroses? And somebody says, the rule book didn't say you can't ride rhinoceroses. It didn't delineate. It didn't say no rhinoceroses. So, so really, it says it's played on horses. But for you, for you to play the game, you need it to list all the possible animals that it can't be played on. See, we don't live life that way, but we want to interpret Jesus' words that way. It's one man, one woman, 
Not two men, not two women. Okay? Jesus did have something to say about it. Now, let's get into Paul. Here's the big argument. This is the hot, trendy argument about Romans 1. Paul knew nothing of today's loving, committed, consensual, same-sex relationships. Okay? So, so stop right there. What Paul had in mind was not two men who love each other, who are willing to be committed to one another for life. He had kind of the, the loose pagan idea in mind. He didn't have loving, consensual relationships in mind. He's only condemning homosexuality that was, and here are three options, coercive, pedophilia between a man and a boy, or heterosexuals who were crossing over. And let me explain what that is. But um, here's, here's what uh, Romans 1 says. Because of this, because of man's idolatry and not recognizing God's existence, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So let's, that's Romans 1. Let's talk about coercion. Here, here's the argument. There was a lot of abusive homosexual activity in the first century. A lot of times, um, slave owners would abuse their slaves sexually. So this is probably condemning coercive homosexuality. Problem is the word one another. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. This is mutual. It's not talking about coercive homosexuality. It's talking about mutual homosexuality here. So, so you can't raise... You can't read into it coercion. Right? Second word, pedophilia. And there was a lot of that in the first century. A lot of pedophilia. A lot of perverted men going after boys. Okay? Problem with that is it says men committed indecent acts with other men. Where's the boys? There, were, there are words in Greek for youth and, and boys. What's he, what he's condemning is men with men. So you can't read pedophilia into this. Okay? Now, let's get into this concept of, of crossing over. What is crossing over? And here's it's kind of a nuanced argument. But they would say crossing over is going outside of the natural inclination you were born with and trying something different. All right? So, Romans 1, according to the revisionists, is actually condemning heterosexuals who are trying homosexuality. And it's condemning homosexuals who were born that way trying heterosexuality. In fact, if you're born a homosexual and you try to be a heterosexual, that's a sin. 
And you Christians who are all so high and mighty about condemning loving, committed, homosexual acts, you're the ones violating Romans 1. Okay, have you heard that one? Here's the problem. The word relations. Okay. Um, let, me, let me read uh, an apologist named Matt Slick. Whoops. Matt Slick says this. The word relations deals with biological function that occurs during sexual intercourse. There is nothing about orientation in that word. Okay? Now, there may be orientation in the the concept of being inflamed with lust. That's talking about internal drive. Okay? In fact, Paul calls it shameful lust. Yeah, there's, there's internal drive, but it's shameful in Paul's mind. But they exchanged natural relations. Uh, some translations say the natural use. What that's talking about is parts. Okay? Paul's argument is not that the sin is that they're going against their God-given orientation, but they're going against their God-given parts. It's a simple argument. It's an argument from biology. God created obvious parts to fit together. And it's a slap in the face of the skilled creator to misuse those parts. It's an argument from plumbing to be crass about it. Okay? Um, If I am an artist and I uh, spend thousands of hours making fine china for you, and think about it, China's a tool. It's a tool to, to help you eat. And I give it to you, and you go, hey, a tool's a tool, and you use it as a hammer to pound in a nail. I, I, I'm, I'm offended that you would treat my craftsmanship so lightly. God has every right to be offended when he perfectly creates the male and the female, the way he has created them, and we go, hey, whatever you love. If you love a tree, then have fun with the tree. If two men love each other, whatever. You know, love is the, the internal stuff is what matters. But Romans 1 is an argument from parts, not just sinful internal desire. Um, Kevin DeYoung has written a book, by the way, if you say, well, what, what book would you recommend? There's a little book called, Is Homosexuality Biblical? It's not a hard read, it's 100 pages, and he touches on all these. And um, he makes two really good points about this, uh, about this argument that 
Paul knew nothing of today's loving, committed, consensual same-sex relationships. His two points are, one, that this is an argument from silence. It's an argument to find, uh, argument from silence to find loving, committed, consensual uh, consensual same-sex relationships as an exception to Paul's blanket condemnation. It's just not there. You have to read it into the text, but it's not there. Okay? But then, here's the killer. Ancient writers did know about loving, committed, consensual, same-sex relationships. Um, N.T. Wright, I'm not a big fan of him, uh, of his view of, uh, of uh, justification. I think he's wrong on justification. But he, he certainly knows his Greek, and he knows... Uh, ancient writers, so, so this, his opinion counts here. And N.T. Wright says, as a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium, or when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as longer-term reasonably stable relationships between two people of the same gender. They knew about this. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever, of course there was plenty of that then, as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options there. Case closed. Drop the mic, right? All right, so let's go to uh, the sixth argument. The word arsenikoite is a word Paul invented and we don't know what it means. So where's that word? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, there are people who live an unrighteous lifestyle, and Paul says they're going to hell. So when you say, oh, well, let's not make a big deal about this. My relatives, uh, you know, I don't want to offend them. You don't care about their eternal salvation? You just want to make peace with them? What kind of love is that? Well, Paul, who are these unrighteous? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. So let's make sure we include heterosexual immorality not just homosexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. So he gives the list of people. And by the way, this is not saying you're saved by cleaning up your act sexually. This is saying if you're saved, you'll clean up your act sexually. So if you aren't cleaning up your act sexually, you're not saved. It's an argument about fruit. It's not the cause of your salvation. Now, the term homosexuality, that's in the ESV, it's arsenikoitai. Guess what? Paul invented the word. So the argument is, Paul invented it. We don't know what it means. We don't have a clue what it means. Could mean, you know, we don't know for sure what it means. Even though the ESV translates it, men who practice homosexuality. Holman translates it, anyone practicing homosexuality. King James, effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind. 
New American Bible, effeminate and homosexuals, NIV, men who have sex with men, New King James, homosexuals and sodomites, New Living, male prostitutes, and those who practice homosexuality, NRSV, male prostitutes and sodomites. Do we really not know what it means? Now, um, this is about as technical as I want to get. Paul wrote in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But many times he quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. The Leviticus verses that we looked at, this would be the Greek, the, the, uh, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew of the Leviticus verses. The English says, whoever shall lie with a male as with a woman. Okay? So here's the phrase, lie with a male. Meta means with. Arsenos is a male. Koitain, from which we get coitus, means to lie with in a sexual manner. So in Paul's Greek Bible, he's reading Leviticus, and these two words are together. Arsenos koitain. Arsenos koitain. Arsenos koitain. We have no idea what the word arsenokoitai means, though. Just don't know what it means. I think we know what it means and where it came from. They were born that way and can't change, is argument number seven. Now, you know, even if there's some predisposition, genetic predisposition, and that has not been proven, okay, is that how we come up with morality? Do we go, I was born that way, therefore, you know, Living a life of alcoholism is okay. Um, We look to God's laws for how we're to live. We don't look inside and say, boy, I have this, this compulsion to live a certain way. God must have made me that way. We don't we don't come up with morality that way. Um so it hasn't been proven that it's genetic. But there is the, the nurture-nature argument. Let's grant for a second that there might be a genetic predisposition or a racial predisposition. Um, certain races are more prone to have a higher rate of alcohol, uh, alcohol abuse than others. Right? Um, I thought of this one the other day. You know all the controversy about the Redskins and insulting Native Americans because of the name Redskins? Have you ever thought about Notre Dame's football team? The Fighting Irish? That's offensive. Yeah, well, it's well known that Irish people have tempers. What if we were to argue that Irish people were born that way, therefore it's fine to fight all the time? No. We don't argue from the internal drives or the predispositions. We look at what Scripture has to say. Therefore, the they were born that way argument is not a biblical way of looking at things. Okay? Sorry, Irish people. Final one. 
There's not been one documented case of actual change from homosexual to heterosexual. Really? Yes, there is. Here's, I, let me document one. An inspired account. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Corinthians changed. There's a documented example of people who were and now are no longer. So don't, don't buy the argument that there's no example of anybody. I, I actually know a person who was caught up in a lifestyle of homosexuality, got saved, or maybe they just got serious with the Lord, and now they're engaged to be married. Does that mean they will never have another fleeting thought or a temptation no, they'll probably have to fight it the rest of their life. Okay? But don't... So, so what you're saying is Paul's a liar and Christ is not strong enough to transform anybody. That's not the kind of God I want to follow. Right? Now, let me close with this. Some of you may be saying, and I said this last week, some of you may be saying... Well, there are, there are those who are just caught up in the lifestyle and they don't care what the Bible says or they'll go buy the books and they'll try to defend it biblically. Um, there's not much. Uh, we, we can't win that argument. I, I pray that if that's you or if you know people in that realm that you would listen to what Scripture has to say and repent. Then there are those, and maybe some here amongst us this morning, where you go, I have temptations in that area. But I know it's wrong. Is there any hope for me? And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, okay? You were washed in the blood. You come to Christ and you surrender not just your sin, but you say, I can't do this. I need you to save me. Not just from hell, but deliver me from sin. And he washes you. That means he forgives you. You were sanctified. Now, that word sanctified, a lot of times we use it to mean progressively growing in Christ. Here, I believe it means you were set apart. When you come to Christ, he sets you apart. He marks you off as one of his and you're holy now. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Justified does mean um, you're declared perfect. Not because you are, but because he gives you his righteousness. That's the gospel. He died in your place. He lived a perfect life. You come to him, a miserable sinner, you say, save me. Forgive me, justify me, deliver me from these temptations. And he sets you apart. He forgives you. He cleanses you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got to fight. You've got to say, I'm going I'm to fight this battle the rest of my life. 
but I want to walk in his holiness, not in darkness. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is so clear. And I pray that in a, a culture, and even in a church culture these days, where there's lots of confusion, um, that you would enable us to see the truth clearly. I pray, Lord, that you would give us discernment to know how to speak about these things, when to speak about these things, when to shut our mouth and not speak about these things, when to lovingly confront, when to um, just be a witness. Lord, this is not, uh, this, this is a delicate process of interacting and talking with people about these things. So we ask for that wisdom and that, that skill in our communication. Lord, I also pray for those amongst us who may be struggling with this particular sin. I pray that you would do that internal work of conviction and uh, uh, produce repentance and faith and trust. And I pray that you would deliver. Deliver us, Lord, not only from homosexual sin, but all sexual sin. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.